0: What's going on, guys? Welcome to the Too Much Test podcast. I believe this is episode eight. Um, If you're listening to this on a podcast platform, you can also watch this on our YouTube channel. Just look up Too Much Test podcast on YouTube. And if you're watching this, you can find us on all major podcast platforms. Uh, You can find myself on YouTube and Instagram under Test Your Levels. You can find Sam on YouTube and Insta under Sam Stolt. And you can find David, Instagram, YouTube, David Dimasquita. So what's going on, guys? How are you guys doing today?
1: Doing awesome. Awesome. I got a good story to tell you guys a little bit later. Uh, I kind Whoa. of alluded to it around the, the vitamin E we talked about a couple episodes ago, but I have that example I was kind of talking about, and I think that was yeah, very interesting.
2: That's awesome. awesome. No, I'm excited to hear about it. But yeah, I did want myself. Looking forward to uh, doing another episode with you guys. Yeah. Yep. It's always, always a good
0: time. Um, so... Today, there's some information that came out in the TRT world that is going to piss a lot of people off. So Empower Pharmacy out of Texas, they are a massive supplier of all types of stuff for TRT, especially HCG. So basically what we learned today is that they will no longer, after November 4th, be shipping any HCG HMG or FSH, and it is supposedly due to a cease and desist uh, or a cease and desist letter from the FDA. Now, I can't confirm that; that's allegedly. What are your guys' thoughts? Well, I saw last—was
1: it last year, six, seven months ago—the FDA came out with like new paperwork. You basically have to fill out in order to manufacture uh, HCG, right?
0: So, basically, basically more
1: money in their pocket.
0: There was, there's a law that was written like 10 years ago. It's called like the biologic something act. And it basically reclassified HCG as a biologic medicine. From what I can gather, this act was supposed to help lower the price of insulin. But in doing so, it basically reclassified HCG as that biologic to where you have to have a biologic uh, license from the FDA, In order to do that, you need like a multi-million dollar, like super high tech facility, and then it's like a two or three year process before you get approval. Supposedly Empower is trying to get this license, but they don't have it yet. And the HCG or the FDA is pissed off that they are selling
2: it. Okay. So From what I understand about it is Trump actually passed the bill to lower insulin. So they are baked in together, like you're saying. But it was when Trump was in office, actually, was when the bill was passed, if I'm not mistaken. Someone correct me if I'm wrong there, but I I heard it's actually Trump actually passed that. And then Biden, when he was first elected, his first executive order, and it was an executive order, was to reverse that bill, basically, and that knocked down the price of insulin. So basically, if you're a diabetic and you need insulin and you don't have a script on hand, and you don't have the money for it you die um if you're type 1 diabetic and it's a serious thing and people forget that that drug in particular is a life or death and for whatever reason hcg like you said was i guess baked into that because of biologics is what's the classification which I, i did not know that piece i just knew that that was all baked in together trump passed it and then biden's first executive order was to reverse that out um which is amazing so if you actually and i don't mean to get into like race or anything but the number one populace that needs insulin is the black community they're the highest populace in the u.s uh that needs insulin so i just thought it was irony behind it in what transpired with the election and what the uh, the political side that they were pushing, and the gender that they were pushing, and that was literally the first executive order, which does nothing but hurt the American people as a whole, anyways. Um, and it, because Trump basically pushed executive orders to ha- aid the people, and this is the literally the first thing that he did in office was literally make it more expensive for insulin, like insulin of all drugs, which is. Painful to think about because people forget that that drug in particular is not like taking and metformin. It's like you are literally going to die, and that was the first thing that he passed. Um, so that was a. Uh, and I don't want to jump into the politics of it, but like that's kind of like like it was a slap of face to the America right there.
1: So when I first when I first experimented with uh, insulin before Trump, uh, it was hundred and fifty dollars for a um, hundred IUs or something. Or maybe it was 150 I just don't remember. And then when I went to do it again during Trump, it was like 28 bucks. And I was like, holy shit. I just bought this a couple of years ago, and it $150. And now it's 20, like 28 bucks or something. And then I'd see these posts online, and they're like, uh, I don't have health insurance. And I was paying this, and now it's my insulin so is going to be $600 a month. I don't know what to do. Like.
2: Now, uh, let, let me add a little bit to it, because I know the insulin world relatively well. Um, obviously, bodybuilding, a lot of bodybuilders do use insulin of, to a degree. Um, there's smart ways. I'm not going to get dabble in like the details of it, but there's different forms of insulin. The most prescribed forms of insulin is going to be your Humalog or Novolog. Novolog is just a generic version. And then you have Lantus. So Humalog is fast-acting. And then you have, which is a 15-minute peak, like it hits after 15 minutes and it basically starts to release and it's a 90-minute timer. And then you have Atlantis, which is 24 hours, and it basically hills and valleys through the day like your pancreas would normally do. I believe that the pulsing is 12 to 14 times through in that 24-hour period. So with,
1: you guys know Champagne and they have like dry and they have extra dry and they have Brut for Champagne. That's what I always think of when, talking about insulin because you have like rapid but then you have like fast and then you have like something that's even quicker or longer and and the naming scheme with insulin always fucks me up because i don't pay that <laughs> close attention to it but it always reminds me of like the champagne and champagne you have like dry then extra dry and then brute and like the, the name is you're like well which one's the sweetest which one like tastes the best and they're like well this one and you're like okay that doesn't make counter in like it doesn't it doesn't have like a uh, a logic in my mind mm-hmm. associated with, with, with those words. Yeah. What, what, go, is, what, what is that with the insulin? Like, what is it rapid and fast? And then there's,
2: I don't even, I don't even. I don't even want so to the good, only but. ways that you can really like, you really have to know the world and you have uh, basal based insulins, which are going to be your longer insulins. And then you have basically the rapid releasing ones. Um, and they just work there like there's no good rhyme or reason to remember it in my opinion um besides if they have an r attached to it so what i was going to say is in those two in particular are very very expensive from over pharmacy when trump was in office you'd be looking at like 300 to 350 dollars for the humalog pen and then atlantis i i think is around 500 to 600 and then now it's more expensive but there are two insulins that you can utilize, that one's a basal and one's a rapid, um, but they're different than those two, which they do not prescribe very commonly. It's one of the oldest forms of it, and that would be your Novolog. Sorry, not Novolog. I almost – I it. Um You have Novolin-R and Novolin-N. You can get these over-the-counter from Walmart for $25 for 1,000 units. So this is the cheapest but way that's to get what it. That must be <laughs> what I got. Exactly that. So that and it's still to this day twenty five dollars even after that bill. I don't know why it did not include that one in particular. Um, I don't know if it's a medical emergency kind of drug, but you can only get it from Walmart. I don't think they even carry it at other pharmacies. So the easy way to remember that one is Novolin R is rapid, but it has a two pulse. It's not like Humalog. It has a fifteen minute pulse and a ninety minute pulse then you have Novolin n which is a 12-hour half-life so instead of atlantis where you hit it once a day you have to hit it twice a day so morning and night kind of thing
1: so with insulin so i like that idea of using insulin as a tool without actually negatively affecting your insulin levels by 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 things like metformin or or slim pills like you know cinnamon extract and berberine and all that kind of stuff i think i'm going to be testing that out so with insulin at some point probably this fall or next year <clears throat> with insulin if you've got that the onset the peak levels of insulin in 15 minutes so is that from Novo and r is what you said
2: right well they start to release like it it, it, it basically pulses they work in pulse mechanisms and it's, it's a hard pulse. Like, so like the Novoline, it like hits at 15 minutes and it doesn't repeak, really peak. Whereas the Novalin R peaks twice and you're looking at in 15 minutes and then 90 minutes. So sometimes people run into the issue where like with the, if they were used to Humalog, for instance, right? And they hit it and they're like, okay, I need carbs during this window of time. Sometimes they need carbs around that window of time and then it peaks again. And then they need more carbs afterwards and they start to go hypoglycemic. So that you just need to be, very, very aware of that, that it does happen? <laughs> Have you, what do you guys think about that?
1: Utilizing it as like to help, uh, say, post-workout using a, a fast insulin, but, but the one that just peaks once just to shuttle nutrients in just after your workout, and then throughout the rest of the day using berberine with your meals to control your blood sugar. So this way you're kind of like, you're pushing the extreme of this side, but then you're just breaking everything back in then you're doing it again like that throughout the day what are your guys thoughts on that strategy
0: um i have no thoughts on insulin i've never tried it i've never really looked into it Uh, i'm not that deep into the bodybuilding or to where i would utilize anything like that um but it's very interesting it's an interesting concept i mean i'm super freaking happy that i don't have to deal with that um because i mean i mean it's this i mean hcg insulin all this stuff this life-saving medicine all this stuff it really goes to show you that the medical industry does not give a fuck about your health in any way shape or form it is nothing but a pure business where they have a monopoly on something and if they can squeeze however much money uh they will i think i was telling david last time there's some crazy medicine for some crazy disease and it's like $17,000 a month or something for this. And this guy went out to China and there's like this China, like medical, you know, fair type thing where you meet all different people that can make medicines. And he's talking to this one place that makes this medicine. And they go back to their little factory and it's not like a super high tech factory or anything. Like they've got like, they have like 55 gallon plastic drums, like full of like raw medical ingredients, like the raw powder. And the lady gives him one kilogram. She gives him 2.2 pounds of this stuff to, to, as like a sample to bring back to the US. And they did the math. And like, if you broke that out into the dosages and the pills and stuff, it was some crazy, ungodly amount of, it was worth like four or five million dollars. And people in China don't just give you shit for free. Like, they're all about their money. So for her to give them, this guy, a kilogram and just be like, here, take back to America. Cool. I mean, you can see how cheap that ingredient is. But here in America, you know, $17,000 a month. And this goes with insulin. And that's, I remember seeing there's, there's some group, it's either in France or something, but they're working together to try and make a version of insulin that will be like open source. So they, I mean, they know how they can make the insulin that these big companies make, but they can't put it out there because they'll get sued because it's proprietary and has patents. So they're trying to find a different way to make insulin and basically give out the recipe or the process to everyone in the world so that people in other countries and in the U.S. can choose to get this stuff that's going to be open source and obviously however many times cheaper. But just crazy. Like you said, I mean, Biden, Trump, the FDA, CDC, they don't give a shit about your health. It's all it's all just a thing about making money. The pharmaceutical money pumps money to the government. The government issues legislation that pumps more money into the pharmaceutical company. And at the end of the day, we're the people that get screwed.
1: I, yeah. saw, an, I saw an interesting, um, an interesting talk, and it was referencing laser eye surgery and how the markets would actually be beneficial by in, inserting uh, transparency and then letting the markets like handle the pricing and how the pricing for LASIK eye surgery is just like plummeted because you have all the ophthalmologists who are are advertising. Okay. It's only $799. Right. And they're like, it's like, you're like, wow, that's really cheap, but they're competent. They've done like, you know, 700 or 8,000 fucking eyes and taking that same thing because you have transparency pricing and then you put it into the market, which allows the market to dictate the price because there's so much, uh, opacity or like vagueness or ambiguity in the medical community uh that you create these just pricing anomalies that are just absolutely insane all over, all over the place it's bit ridiculous yeah, it's,
0: it's crazy the the me- like medicine so so on this so i'm pfizer right i make this medicine right i'm making a shit ton of money and my patent's about to expire on this to where it can go to a generic. So now I basically just re I change the way that it's processed, or I add something else in, or it's just done in a different way, and I re patent it so that it can't be on the generic market. So it's a it's just a bullshit way to go around, you know, and just be able to keep your stuff proprietary so that it never goes to generic, so that you never
2: stop making money on it. It's it's what, man, what were you gonna say, stuff. David? Yeah, so, Sam, I can, I can t- kind of talk to you. Like, we can jump back into that topic later on if you want to, about the insulin stuff, if you want to. But as far as, like, continuing this conversation, I just want people to know that from an HRT clinic, one reason why Aromacin is not prescribed, which is one thing I always theorized, is how expensive it is in the U.S. Aromacin is $24 a pill versus Aneshazol which is Arimidex is approximately 2 to $4, depending on who you're getting it from. But I can order Pfizer brand Aromacin from India or anywhere else in the US for $2 a pill, which is the same exact price as Arimidex, And that is Pfizer, that is not a generic brand. And that tells you what the upcharge is in the U.S. and how many political payoffs had to happen for that drug to be legalized in the U.S. That is literally payoffs, and then they have to make their money back at the end of the day. I guarantee you that's exactly – that's one drug in particular. And I can tell you right now that it's $2 from other countries from the same brand. And do you know – so that's a great point you bring up because one of the things that the drug companies (laughs)
1: actually want is – Regulation that doesn't allow companies to, uh, say, trade medically across from the board because from a pricing, from a pricing standpoint, Pfizer will come to the United States and be like, okay, the averaging household income is sixty thousand dollars, sixty two thousand dollars. Well, that means that they could pay this for this, right? And and given that it's insulin that is potentially life threatening, that means they get to pay a premium to that. Okay, well, we go to say India, right? Where the average income is nine thousand dollars, right? So they can only pay this much. So the ability to buy in India the exact same fucking thing probably on the same fucking plant and then ship it back to the United States that is uh, that's something that the pharmaceutical companies don't want to happen because then it affects their pricing, right? It's it's just arbitrage. They're like, oh shit, I can get insulin over here for you know thirty-seven cents because it only takes two cents to actually make hundred IU's and then I can ship it to the United States at a four hundred percent markup and just like. So, so think about wh-
0: Sussanon, Sussanon, they were trying the a company, uh, Organon or whatever, they were trying to get Sussanon to the U.S. and it never passed FDA trials uh, because, you know, Pfizer, Merck and all that, they're selling Cipionate and anthate They're like, competition, hell no, we don't want that. That shit is not passing FDA approval. Governor, this, you know, let's, you know, I know you've had your eye on that property out in Aspen. You know, what if one of our shell companies were to purchase that and transfer it to you for a dollar? And, you know, just uh, for HCG, um, there's a brand, there's a, a pharmacy called Bharat Serums out of India, and they make a product called HuCog. It's HCG, but it comes in liquid form um, and it has a shelf life of two years. Now, ask me how I know this. I don't know. I just do lots of research. but. Um, from what I've seen, the price is about about $120 or $100 for 25,000 IUs. Uh, and then you throw in shipping, you're looking at about $130,000, dollars It's not really that much of a better price compared to here, but that's including the shipping. And you have to think that's just a business that's making a profit. So if they have 50 or 100% margins, it costs them 50, they sell it to you 100. You know what I'm saying? So $10 for 5,000 IUs is the real cost. But, you know, as
2: it goes to the supply chain, it gets more and more expensive. But that's not even approved here in the U.S. And one of my favorite things, though, is when we're talking about in India and China and cost per living and what they can charge for drugs over there. But people forget most of the drugs are manufactured in China and India. And so they're coming from the same place. They're charging different prices. So it's 100 percent political payoffs. Maybe transportation fees not, not included. And they throw that in there. And then on top of it, if you look at actual pharmaceuticals, besides just the bodybuilding drugs that we're talking about, something like ADD medication, there was an ADD medication and I forgot which brand it was being produced in China. And they started adding in fentanyl to cut down costs on that drug, shipping it to the US and people were like having heart attacks from it because I guess fentanyl per gram or something like that is a lot stronger. So it was like a huge thing that just happened not too long ago. So we, we're not even manufacturing them in the U.S. You know, like growth hormone and stuff like that, that's a little bit different. Like they know that shipping things come into the equation and you can lose purity on it and stuff like that. So it has to be manufactured here. And I'm sure there's some regulations or things have to be manufactured here. But the raws, yeah, that's coming from there. Yeah.
1: I, I, I almost think mm. with what's happening um, right now, we have – the, the issues of the ports well there's many fucking issues right you <laughs> also have this great you have this great awakening of, of people who are like I, I don't want to work for a company that just doesn't give a fuck about me whatsoever and work under these environments plus you have like ambitious people who are like I want to do my own thing and and then you have other people who are like I don't need to make eighty thousand dollars a year I am perfectly happy if I make three thousand dollars and I only work 10 hours a week. And you have all this, these pieces going on at the same time, so you have this mass amount of people who are quitting their jobs. And, and when you think about, I'm, I'm reading this very interesting book um, by the author of The Black Swan, and he and he's talking about um, like the further you get away from, in my mind, how I'm interpreting it, is of creation or being at the ground level. The, the obviously the more ambiguous the information is the shittier the information is at that level because you don't you don't like that's why Trump was able to communicate at such a great level relative to anybody else because he paid attention to his Twitter right and so we have gotten away from that standpoint of being able to actually produce anything uh because we it's all gone there was tax incentives and payoffs to pay people off so you can get it out of the country and give them money and all that shit right we know that was happening but now you have this massive massive quantity of millions of people were voluntarily quitting every single month in record numbers. And is this the catalyst that starts to increase people's like uh Creativity in terms of manufacturing shit, even if it's just in their house, and then they're like, "Okay, let me get this piece of equipment," and and they're doing ten a month, right? And then now they're doing like a hundred in a year from today. Because is that what's going to bring this back together, so that people are actually starting to create things and they understand what is going on? Versus like, you know, you can go do you know toenail studies and fucking some other school and teach you about you know all this crazy shit that just doesn't have any pertinence to reality.
0: I want to touch, I definitely want to touch on that about manufacturing in the US, but I just wanted to just add on to the different prices of different medicine. So a lot of people don't realize that, you know, Walmart isn't going directly to Pfizer and being like, okay, here's a PO, we want to buy this, 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 and this. So the manufacturers, you know, Merck, Pfizer, all that, they send it to a distributor who then works with different groups, you know, so they may have multiple distributors for all their stuff. And then they will sell it to Walmart. And then so you go, so let's say I go fill a prescription for whatever medicine, right? They Walmart's got this big bottle. And then when they figure when they go to see how much they're gonna charge you through your insurance, they look and they have there's a middleman involved. And depending on who that middleman is and how large they are, that's the type of discount you get or what you pay. So Walmart could literally pull 100 pills out of the same bottle and another 100 pills and it could cost me 200 bucks, it could cost someone 10. And what GoodRx did is I believe they used the distribution codes, whatever it is. If you ever see GoodRx, they have those like four different codes, all crazy numbers. I believe they used them through it was either USAA or uh what's the one for older people? Um uh, What's that group? AARP. So I believe they use those. You're getting the pricing of a massive group together. um, And the way it works is that they basically, the person that has whatever these codes or the master code person, they're basically getting half of the profit and then GoodRx is getting half the profit, but it lowers the price. And for me, I have never seen a GoodRx price that is worse than my insurance. So insurance for me is just, I get hit by a fucking car and my arm's hanging off. I get sewn up. But for medicine, it makes no
2: sense for me. Well, so I'm going to kind of combat that really fast. So I just got prescribed. I'm, I'm getting surgery tomorrow. So I just had to pick up seven prescriptions. I don't have insurance, right? Insurance makes no sense for me. I get run blood work run six times a year. Um, I have doctors in my back pocket. I don't need insurance. I'm not paying for someone else to be sick. So... <laughs> <laughs> i think i'm too blunt honest sometimes i think but that's okay um so i go to i go to the doctor i, don't, I, have tr- doctor, I don't, doctor, don't have insurance either
1: similar reasoning i don't i don't have insurance i just don't see it
2: yeah like, yeah <laughs> the kind of insurance i get right like if I, I end up getting like cancer you know you or going to the er because i got hit by an 18-wheeler but if the 18-wheeler is still going to pay for it anyway so um so, so um went to the pharmacy and Some of the scripts were like $200 to $300. GoodRx knocked those down to like $50-ish. But there was a painkiller that I was prescribed. um, And my dad happened to get surgery literally last week. So right before the surgery. So I had to pick up his script as well. It was about $20 cheaper for his prescription. Same Um, thing? Same thing. So it was pretty close. In price, um, but I have seen good Rx also beat insurance before. I've literally seen him beat it because I've had insurance before, and I showed up. And I'm like, um, it, was, it was actually um, the generic form of, it's so funny. So, PPIs, proton pump inhibitors. So, basically, um, anti-acids, which, by the way, they cause cancer if you take them long-term. And doctors put the people on it and just leave them on it because it's who cares, bad. right? <laughs> um, so, it's a really dangerous drug, and it's very commonly prescribed. So, either way. And um, went to pick it up after I got prescribed like with it because I had an ulcer. So I had to bring down the stomach acid levels to at least heal the ulcer up. And then you come off of it and you actually try to raise your stomach acid level so you don't get another ulcer. So picked it up from the pharmacy for 20 or $30. And then I was like, isn't this Omeprazole? So literally I picked up Omeprazole, which isn't even over the counter. you can literally walk into a store and buy it off the, the shelf mm-hmm. for $6
0: yeah, I take a <laughs> Meprazole. I take a what, Meprazole. What is What's interesting about me- Meprazole is they're in 14 day treatments. So they won't sell you a bottle with 42 of them. It's three, uh, 40, 14 pill bottles. And there's, there's, I don't know why the reasoning that is, but it's like that. So I've been taking a for a while. I have bad heartburn. Like I can eat a turkey sandwich with cheese and mustard. And if I don't take a Meprazole, I will get heartburn. Like, I could go to sleep, I will wake up, and I will have acid in my throat, and I cannot sleep, and you can take Tums, but maybe David
2: has something that can help. Yeah, man. So, like, you're talking to someone that's, like, basically gut specialized at this point. So, I fixed guts better than doctors fix guts because gastroenterologists look at pills versus I look at holistic approaches, which a lot, 95% of the gut can be healed holistically. There are some pills that can aid with certain gut disorders and stuff like that. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that, but most of it can be fixed holistically. It just sometimes takes a little bit longer and usually less aggressive approaches with guts are better long-term. Now, the issue with pills is you have to look at which pills absorb into the actual gut lining because the gut is meant to absorb and recirculate through the body. Omeprazole, a proton pump inhibitor, is one that absorbs into the body. You can take things to coat the walls, which Tom's does not coat the walls, but something like a peptobismol actually coats the walls, but doesn't absorb into the bloodstream. So you want to look at things like that that do not reuptake into the body. So with proton pump inhibitors, acid reflux is caused 95% of the time. It's 90 to 95% of the time, and maybe even higher than that, by low stomach acid. Now, if you think when you eat food... What happens, it's kind of like when you used to do the basic basic uh, stuff in the volcano and then you pour, pour, I think, like vinegar into it and it explodes up. Well, think about if your stomach is too basic and you put something into your body and now the stomach acid has to release to basically break down that protein or break down that food and it shoots up and then you get acid reflux. Similar concept, and just I'm trying to dumb it down. But HCL is what the body releases to increase stomach acid levels. So if you go ahead and you take HCL, now you can take it from everywhere from 600 milligrams, which is a normal like one pill dose, up to 1,800 milligrams, then and raise that stomach acid level before you put food into your body. And guess what happens? Now the stomach acid levels are elevated, so they no longer need to skyrocket it up. As you age in time, you release less and less HCL through the body. Now, it's not a permanent thing that you have to stay on, but if you're someone with acid reflux, HCL is usually the fix for you. But there are other things that come into the very Try that and report next week. Yeah. Just another supplement I have to buy and take every day. I'm up (laughs) to like 10. You don't even want to know what I'm taking. So I'm actually killing off SIBO, candida overgrowth and leaky gut right now, healing my leaky gut, um, which is causing wall permeability. It's too permeable. So things recirculate through the body, such as estrogen. Um, now it gets a little bit more complex when it comes to acid reflux, because there are bacterias in the body that can cause acid reflux. H. pylori is a big one. So that's going to be a bacteria in the stomach and that'll cause severe acid reflux. But usually with H. pylori, It can be caused by SIBO. SIBO and H. pylori go hand in hand very frequently. You can see people getting backed up from the SIBO, gut ascension from the SIBO, things like that. But I see H. pylori probably 30% of the time in in sequence with a SIBO case. Um, I've seen C. diff. I've seen salmonella with SIBO. Like I usually, when you have SIBO, there's something else paired with it. Um, and H. pylori is probably, uh, maybe it's 40, 30 to forty percent from my relative experience. Right, that I see that. So, um, now H. pylori, a natural fix for H. pylori would be manuka honey. But if you have SIBO, you do not want to take ingest honey because honey is a high fodmap. SIBO cases, you have to put on low FODMAP foods. So, this is like the trifecta that happens with everything. There's so much that comes into the gut, and people underestimate it. And when your hormones are off, and crap, uh, females, right? You can see zero, zero, zero on females, which progesterone, estrogen, and testosterone. Sometimes if they're too low for too long, which can be, is usually a hypothalamus access issue or an ovarian hypothalamus, a pituitary issue. Um, if they're down for too long, guess what will happen? The gut will get thrown off. And I see SIBO cases very, very commonly in women that have hormone issues for too long of a period of time, which most women don't realize that they have hormone Mm -hmm. issues. They just assume that they're like losing their minds when they're either skipping their periods or they're stressed. Well, the stress could cause it, but. You can be stressing and having anxiety from the hormone deficiency or your hypothyroidism you're getting depression from. Go ahead. One of the one of the things, as so I was reading this book,
1: I mentioned it a couple episodes ago, um, uh, it was a doctor in California about healing the gut, right? Because there's lots of things we can do post, like you have an injury of some sort and, and like with the acid, instead of taking the thing, like an acid reducer, like actually giving your body what it needs to be able to take care of it, which you re- just talking about, but one of the things that goes through and actually causes a lot of these uh, issues with gut but also issues with gut caused like all the other peripheral things like whether it's chronic disease or other autoimmune diseases and whatnot is lectins. So he's treated over 10,000 people in his clinic And over the and he's like a he's got like a couple patents for like the heart surgeries that he's done. He's a very well-known doctor, Um, Stephen Gundry, I think his name is. And the very very good book. It's called The Plant Paradox. Reducing lectins. Lectins are, you know, when you feed your dog chocolate and then the dog dies, right? Because it has it can't like process the chocolate because it has it's poison to the dog effectively. Well, lectins are what are in some plants that are effectively poison to us, and these lectins will take a path, will take like three different ways to actually break through. Because did you know that our 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 GI tract, like our, from our mouth to our ass, is effectively one set thick, right? In our intestines, so we have this wall that's super 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 thin, and and that wall. On the one hand, it's in our body, but tactically it's outside of our body. Think of like driving through a tunnel underwater. You're technically underwater, but you're not really underwater, right? Well, that's how our gut is. And we have shitloads of bacteria that are super beneficial in our gut, but not in our body. So these lectins will get into our gut and they will either be like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pretend like I'm David so I can get inside. So then they, our body doesn't know, so it mimics it and opens up the cell so that they actually get inside of our body. It uses brute force to just break through. Um, or it, like, basically clings to, uh, I think it's some type of sugar molecule, and it piggybacks on the sugar molecule. Like, David's walking in, and he's a good guy, so I kind of, like, hide behind David and poke no to notices. <laughs> and those are the three ways that it goes in through the butt. So into the body. So I've been going through reducing this uh, lectins. And I eat, generally speaking, about three pounds of meat per day and a bunch of different types of vegetables. And I've been incorporating low or no lectin vegetables. And after eating like one pound and then a bunch of vegetables or a resistant starch with that, I have these big, massive plates of food, not even slightly bloated. Like not even I'm eating a pound of chicken, a bunch of vegetables, and like this morning I had a big ass sweet potato. I'm not I'm this whole entire thing for breakfast. Not even slightly bloated. The impact it's made for me is tremendous, and like the first week or so of dropping those lectins out and then um, replacing them with things that didn't have lectins in them uh, made for years this is tmi but i had like a log shit i hadn't had a log shit normally it's in, like pieces or just like you know not super solid and this is the first time in years that this has happened if you guys haven't aren't familiar with lectins um i re- recommend checking that book out to see what you think about it but there's a lot of different things that would probably david you're probably already things like
0: um I was going to say, so let us know what what, what are foods that are common that have lectins that, that someone would want to avoid if they were listening to this. They don't want to read a book, and they're just like, yo, I just want to – tell me what to avoid so I can get rid of some of these lectins.
1: Well, one – you guys probably already are aware. You know how beans people fart or, like, what is it, black bean or whatever, a kidney bean connection, dangerous to us, or certain things, right? Well, beans, number – beans are a big thing. Soy, corn, um tomatoes, basically anything with a seed in it. Um, hmm. There's there's another thing that's kind of like lectin, but it's in, it's WGA and it's in milk products. But there's a, there was a mutation in like cows that caused them to have this WGA, which acts similar to a lectin in our, in our body. So I'm working towards figuring out which milk it is that actually doesn't have this WGA. Uh, but basically reducing corn, soy, beans um
2: sounds all like of, all the cheap stuff i'm gonna no i'm gonna jump in there and i'm gonna add probably almost every nightshade nightshade yep, yep. okay cool. that, so, that, so rec- that,
1: that includes all the nightshades peppers and all that shit but also legumes so peanuts, mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't realize cashews are actually a legume so I cut out. i eat cashews that's technically oh. a legume so i cut Wait. out Peanuts I thought the only
2: nut that was a um, legume was a peanut. Uh, that's what people think, but actually, cashews are an actual
1: legume. And the did you know that there's actually the people who harvest cashews like have to wear protective gear because of like how poisonous this is to them. Like so this. So,
0: so the cashews and legumes, is it because, like, you can break them in half? Like, they naturally c- break in half? Is that why they're considered legumes? Like, the stash, you know, because, like, pistachios and... I think because
2: they technically come from the ground, I think, similar to, like, that, a bean, I think. that yeah. That's it. It's it's like a bean. Um, like, legumes are a completely different classification. Every other nut besides, I guess, those two, I didn't realize... Cash, I know cashews, like, if you have seed c- bone stuff like that or histamine intolerances, you have to avoid cashews because they are poison body. Yes, yes, um, yes.
1: So a lot of this is so, probably overlapping with what you're talking
2: about. Yeah. And, um, so there is overlap because you have, like if you look at um like treating like SIBO cases or usually people with acid reflux, one, they're having liver issues or kidney issues. Like it's one of those two enzymes in there that helps to break them, the histamines down And histamines, is any allergic reaction that the body has like histamines are good for the body the body naturally holds histamines in it but if you have a histamine intolerance or something it overloads the body you have trouble breathing sometimes you get a rash um whether it's a dog licking you or whether you're eating a peanut which i'm allergic to all of a sudden after my entire life eating them two years ago when i had histamine intolerances um and it had to do with legumes and oxalates as well so oxalates gets interesting too so oxalates would be like Super high oxalate nut is almonds, actually. And I couldn't eat almonds for a while. I can eat them again though. But yeah. So we'll try um, so
1: almonds have lectins of some sort or or they're derivative of it or something. But raw almonds without the without that brown shell on the outside, like the ones that are like, oh, these are bland tasting ones, those are the ones that are better for us because that shell has the like there's reasons. From a biological standpoint, the plants are like trying to protect themselves, right? So that's why they do these things. Like, oh, well, if I fuck Sam up, then he's not he's gonna stop eating my pet, right? <laughs> Over time. And that's, that's kind of like the idea. Like, if we kill the dog, then he'll stop eating the cocoa planters, that kind of thing.
0: Um, please pause for a second. This is a really bad episode for me because I take the <laughs> metrazol, I've been taking metrazol for a long ass time. Uh, and David's telling me that it's got cancer and it's going to kill me basically. Um, and then I take, I kind of pride myself on pretty much getting most of my fats from nuts. So I'll eat, uh, you know, mixed nuts throughout the day. And I literally just went to Aldi a few days ago and picked up a big ass thing of freaking cashews because they're my favorite nut. So you guys are fucking up my diet. Like I'm feeling like I'm doing something good, getting these unsaturated fats you're telling me I got lessons floating around, <laughs> ocelots. I'm getting cancer out of the stomach.
1: <laughs> he, he goes,
0: I'm, I'm bouncing. I'm out. He has. He has. The
1: doctor has a t- an entire chapter on um, what David was talking about with the, the the proton inhibiting for the acid stuff because. Those are very bad for you and cause other issues. So by going through and and making the gut healthier, he goes through it example after example after example, and he does. He's also done plenty of published um, clinical trials, like double blind, placebo controlled studies on this shit. And it was it's super interesting. My my um, sister has a lot of different, just like health nuanced things. Right. So I shared this with her. I haven't had a chance to speak with her yet, but like these types of things are, he talks about how he's actually had several people reduce cancer. And as soon as you say that, you're like, Oh, this guy has to be a quack, but like go fucking (laughs) do your own fucking research. And once you understand that, like leaky gut means basically a hole in the tunnel, that's going to fill up with water, right? If you're driving a car through and there's a underneath the bridge uh, or underneath the tunnel underwater, and there's a fucking hole, That water is going to fill up that tunnel, or in in terms of, like, our body, it's going to be, like, this pressurized tube of shit that is going inside of your body that is not supposed to be in your body. And it's up everything.
2: Yeah, so my estrogen, and I have a theory, my estrogen profile, because I've never, ever had aromatization issues, and I still don't. I have no, like, gynecomastia or anything like that, even with my estrogen levels being on the elevated side of my blood work, and I have a leaky gut. Well, guess what? It gets shit out. Estrogen. So it's recirculating through the body. So it's almost like, and I'm going to theorize with your water through the tunnel, right? If that hole is where we're going, right? And that's food and that's our intestines, what we're going through. That's actually space. And when you have a little hole, that's a, the, what happens with space in a, combust, in a pressurized chamber is it gets sucked out. So whatever's going through there, it's slowly getting sucked out and be- put back into the body, and it is toxic for the body. You are trying to excrete for a reason. Um, shoot, even um, what's the uh? Oh my gosh, it's where there's a, actually like a bleeding that's happening in the intestines. It's a, it's a, like a slit in it. Um, it oh my we gosh. got some
1: type of lesion in there. I know what you're talking about, but they basically like some type of lesion in the intestine that causes that. To like basically go into your body. Same exact
2: fucking thing. I've had exact thing. three people with that case, right? Where they, and the people end up in the hospital with it. And they're like, what the hell is going on? They're like, oh, you have this. You're pretty much like stuck with it. But like avoid these foods. It's like you can heal that. It's your gut. It's your body. Your body is meant to heal. It's soft tissue. If not, that tendon blew off from it. And you have to get surgery to reattach it. You can heal that back up. And the whole key to this whole process with guts is... One, elimination of the top like things that are bad for you. So lectins, um, if you have histamine intolerance, whatever it may be, if you need to do go from high FODMAP map to low FODMAP. But just keep in mind, like medium and high FODMAPs are needed for healthy people. I just want to reiterate that. It's only like when you have a SIBO case that low FODMAP makes sense. Um it's kind of like adding diversity and adding a cheat meal. It's good every once in a while, probably gut bio. So when you eliminate all that stuff. And then you're clearing the pipes and the pipes are getting cleaned out, right? And then it's kind of empty because now we're, things are flowing normally and you have the damage and you need to heal the damage. Glutamine can heal the damage. Aloe vera can heal the damage. Like you start funneling it, but it starts from the top down. So a lot of these cases. This is why I actually hated gut health for the longest time when it was being publicized by like Dr. Axe and all these guys. Probiotics, probiotics. I'm like, probiotics is like, Three to 5% of gut health. And then usually what causes your issue in the gut is the upper gut, not the lower gut. You're probably not breaking down your foods well. And then you're getting damage to the lower gut intestines or the large intestines, whatever it may be. So that's why I don't like how people perceive gut health from the, oh, I can't pass stool. It's my intestines. Well, why are your intestines backed up? Where is it starting? Is it your stomach? Maybe your stomach acid's low from a meprazole, right? Maybe your liver's not functioning well, so it's not um, breaking down the toxins properly. Like maybe your gallbladder isn't putting enough bile into the liver. Like that's all the upper gut, the esophagus. Are you not chewing your food enough? Saliva. These are all things and that people don't think about. It's very very logical, but it's kind of like. Um, having bad injectors or something like that and the oil just constantly pumping out and like the next thing you know oil is like coming out of the exhaust pipes and like that's creates sludge and your car eventually starts breaking down and having all these other issues but the root cause may have been at the very beginning of the thing which is a fuel injector or bad gas or whatever it may have been check the beginning of the engine check the beginning of it find the root cause and start working its way back down and one side real quick and now this will be the last one. <laughs> um,
1: one of the things that is tremendously helpful that actually feeds uh the good microbiome bacteria and like living organisms in our gut is resistant starches so going through like you can convert some starch in a a white potato by cooking it and then letting it cool and then that way it's basically converting some of the starch to a resistant starch um uh, plantains and uh and sweet potatoes well these are the things that i'm incorporating for myself because what a resistant starch you can think of in very simple terms is like you can eat it and your body doesn't actually necessarily ingest all that what ends up happening is it goes through and your the bacteria, the the living organisms and worms and all the bugs that are in your gut will go through the, ooh, dinner time. And they grow stronger from that. So they're able to protect their environment. You're actually feeding them, even though you might not actually absorb the calories from them, your gut is actually utilizing those resistant starches to benefit from it. So I added in plantains, which would be like something I don't normally have. And a lot more, I switched to sweet potatoes just regularly now. Uh, just to continue to feed it on a regular basis, things that are actually helpful.
0: I just wanted to switch gears just a little bit. Um, (laughs) There's just something random that thought. I have another thing too, but I know a lot of guys who are on TRT and gear, they always talk about rotating muscles so they don't build up scar tissue. But I've never seen anyone that's ever had an issue with scar tissue from injecting too much. There's just a random thought. I know everyone talks about it on Reddit, like, Oh, I'm switching. I'm rotating from glutes to delts to quads to, you know, this and that, because I don't want to get scar tissue buildup. But have you ever heard of anyone getting scar tissue buildup? And what does that Uh, look like? Have you ever, have you guys, um, I've been, I've been
1: on TRT for three years now. And, um, you guys ever hit the spot where it's like, uh, you're pushing a needle through a piece of wood or something it's like i i mean i don't know how to describe it but it's like it's it's not going through it does not feel like it's going through flesh but i I, and i i believe i don't know but that's what i feel like the scar tissue build up that's why i use like insulin pens Mm -hmm. to try to combat that and then foam rolling to try to help potentially with some of that i always
0: figure that's like i always figure that's like a tendon or like a nerve or like, you know, like you got right at the connecting point of two little fibers that are a little stronger. But I have felt that where you go, you go like that and you're like, huh, that's a little extra resistance. And you have to go through a little, little more. I'm just wondering, I mean, what, could that, I mean, could that hurt you? I mean, is that going to limit your muscle growth? Is that going to do anything to you outside of being annoying when you're injecting?
2: So... One, I like, I, I'm pretty sure Sam is correct with his statement that that's usually scar tissue. Um, it could be that you're like in a capillary or vein and I mean, it just isn't taking, I mean, I've literally had it where it's like in my shoulder, just kidding. I'm natural, but I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) in, in my shoulder and it like, I can't actually plunge it in. Like it won't even take and then you adjust it a little bit and then it starts to take. So something is obstructing it. So there is an obstruction of some sort in there now. The interesting thing about moving injection sites, which no one talks about, is the absorption ratios of the actual Mm. steroids, which is actually huge. They did studies back in the day on actually absorptions of different muscle groups. And that's one of the big benefits of it is, like, you probably want to pin the muscles that are the highest absorbing ratios of these steroids because there is a difference between them. Um and I actually think that glutes isn't even really that great for you if I'm not mistaken. I don't remember, but I
1: saw that. That's interesting to bring that up. I haven't.
2: Yeah, I remember reading that. But yeah, there is a, there is scar tissue build up. Um, for sure. Um, now people say that 25 gauge or below, like 25 gauge is good, but anything below 25 gauge and you get scar tissue build up, and then 25 gauge and above, and it seems like. I don't know if the body tries to heal. I would assume it does. So, but it's not going to literally kill tissue every single time that you're injecting. I assume that if you're putting in a harpoon every single time, the body heals it slower. So you need to give it more of a rest time. Um, But I don't think anyone's injecting with like 15 or 18 gauge needles. <laughs> what what size
1: needles do you guys use?
2: I use 27 gauge half inch for almost everything.
1: Okay. And you're using ins- insulin pins, right?
2: Yep. Okay. So I'm, I'm using 25-gauge, 1 inches, and if I'm doing shoulders, I only go half an inch in, sometimes three-quarter inch in, but I have pretty big shoulders, so, like, they take really easily, and then the reason why I have a 1 inches is if I have to go into the glute, even though I don't have a lot of fat on my glute, um, the last thing I want to do, I know you guys have had experience it before, where it gets caught in between, like, it leaks out of the muscle, and I would rather go in deeper than not going that deep enough, and then get it to leak out, next thing you know, you have, like, a rash, and you're like, am I dying? <laughs> Do you guys have, I'm like, oh, sure you guys have, it. where
1: you do the <laughs> injection and uh, I think it's happened with my glute, but it's probably happened on my shoulders more. And I don't do shoulders very often. I do way more of like lower body, but you do the injection. And for whatever reason, the hole that the pin was in doesn't like close up. And then you've got like, okay, testosterone that's spreading out of your shoulder. And you're like, damn, now
0: I'm fucking, I'm
1: not at my TRT. Yeah.
0: <laughs> 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 I have that. That definitely has happened to me. Um, you know, I, but I can't remember the last time I've gotten pit. And I was I pretty much. This is another thing that you guys are shitting on me again today. So I do I do pretty much when I'm doing test and DECA, because I I don't like glute shots. I just it's just annoying to me. I like having two hands and quads, quads hit or miss quads, either I don't feel it at all, or I get pip from it. So I just hit shoulder, 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 shoulder. So now I have a bunch of scar tissue in my shoulder on top of eating the lessons. Um, but no, no, another thing I was going to let people know that people don't really think about is just because you have a half inch pin, you know, they're like, Oh, that's too shallow. I mean, you can push a syringe in and you can push it deeper into your shoulder, you know? So I think I could get, pretty close to a full inch into my shoulder or at least three-fourths just from that. So people don't really think about that, that you can manipulate a half-inch insulin syringe to be a little deeper. Um,
2: you know, just just a thought.
0: I mean, it sounds like, like you're talking my about my chest. sex
2: life now. What was that? <laughs> I said it sounds like he's talking about my sex life now.
0: <laughs> you can always get oh. it a little half-inch half inch further. You just have to be uh, persistent. It's, it's not the
2: size; It's how you use it, right? <laughs> it's called the Houdini.
0: <laughs> you know, what's interesting is that there there's a, you know, there's actual like uh, there's different methods to measure your penis size. And one of them is actually like pushing pretty much as far in on the top as because, you know, your penis is actually goes further into your body. It actually goes way far down. And so that's the way that I, I believe they do it in like all these studies is they get like a ruler and they push it into like your like fupa area. Well, I don't know. You guys probably don't have those, but some of us bigger gentlemen.
1: Um, no, I was literally, I was literally like, "What is it? What is a fupa?" I was like, "I didn't know what fupa was."
0: Stands what? for fat upper pussy area, and that's the monetization right there. But that's what it stands for. But you can you can you can adjust the the you know the other p word for the male p word. Yeah, you guys ever heard of joking?
1: You can what actually, I- so you can actually extend the length of your penis through, like you know those people who you you do those things with their ears, and then they get like a gigantic like uh, stretching of the skin of the ears, and it's not like terribly. It takes like time for them to do that. So you can do exactly the same thing for your pot. but basically you're 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 trying to basically pull on it. and and it's not gonna happen over two days or a fucking week it's gonna happen over the course of say 18 months or 26 months or 36 months of the continual like pulling on your cock regularly to extend it and that does happen so this is pretty
0: much like you're just basically tying like a 25 pound weight to to your dick and just walking around kind of swinging I've also oh. I've I've heard that that there's like there's kits and there's products for guys that have been circumcised. That's the same idea, slowly built up over time to and they'll stretch out their skin so they can get a foreskin back. I mean, I've never been that worried about it, but some guys are really like into that and are really like like it takes like two years to do of wearing like some cone shit or something on your penis all the time. But uh mm-hmm. and then they also have the the vacuum type tools. Um you know, like the, the penis pump. Yeah. But I know. there's I, one I want to try, try one of those.
1: I, I don't know what they're actually for, but I, I read somewhere that they work, and I was like, "Oh, that'd be fun to try at some point."
0: I think it's the same idea. You have to do it for a while, and I know one of them. I know Ryan Russo had talked about it on his Instagram. There's one. It's like two hundred bucks, and you like ah. do it like in the bath because it uses the water instead of air. It uses the water to create more pressure or something like that. Um, but.
2: Yeah, so, it's interesting. thing we're all working from home. We can just tie 25 pounds down there now and we're good to go.
0: <laughs> so I want to how, ask you guys, how, do they, how do they
1: do that measurement? Okay, guys, this is what you're going to do. You're basically going to jerk off every day for the next year, and we're going to do a measurement now. And then <laughs> imagine being like, hey, Dave, you've got to go measure
2: everybody. <laughs> <laughs> You so the the, the pe- what, what and then we can jump on to on to the next topic. um but the, there's like penis enlargement surgery like you were talking about but like they actually like unfold it out of like whatever like that because it goes up in your body they can actually like pull it out of your body a little bit from what i understand that that's like the only like true penis enlargement surgery that actually works um not that i'm too worried about it like myself like <laughs> like i'm like uh eh. I I just joke around about it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I'm married already, so I'm good.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What what were you about to say, Tessa
0: So what I was going to say is, you know, and I've been thinking about this for a while, like you have, and I'm not like shitting on anyone that does fitness stuff on YouTube and stuff, but I think we've gotten to the point with like fitness information that, that the information that's out there and the shit that people argue about is like, it's, It's to the point where regular people who are not bodybuilders, this shit does not even matter to them. You know, like you've got people that are like, okay, well, this is this program and it's scientifically shown that you do this, this, and this, you know, you'll get 2% extra muscle. And I just feel like, you know, people like uh, Greg Doucette, and I don't dislike Greg Doucette, but the stuff that they argue about and the stuff that people, hundreds of thousands of views are stuff that doesn't matter to any of them. You know what I'm saying? Does does that make sense? Like, I think that people, people focus on reps. They focus on, like, I see guys in the gym that are like overweight and are really super skinny and they're doing like these crazy, these crazy, like exercises that I know they got from an influencer. I saw a guy sitting on the lap bar, the overhead lap bar, and he's going like this and he's doing curls like this. And I'm like, what the fuck is that different than doing this? But I see a lot of these people and they follow like, you know, okay, there's rep 12 I'm done. And I think people would get so much more results if they say, fuck reps, pick a weight and do it until you cannot get it. That last one. I think Arnold said it like, it's not the reps that you do that build muscle. It's the reps that you can't do that really rip apart that muscle tissue and allow it to build back
2: bigger. What are you guys thoughts? Um, yeah. Okay. So one you have a lot of keyboard warriors nowadays that are, are going to quote studies, too. In the bodybuilding world, And pretty much everyone's enhanced. There's very few natural people in the bodybuilding world. So ninety nine point nine eight nine 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 percent of those studies are omitted. And then so you have the keyboard warriors that are fighting about reps in reserve. Why are you talking about reps in the tank if you don't even know what you failure is? Um, so. B, the reps that you can get, those matter. You need to execute properly, train intensely, and when those variables are (laughs) in check, then you progressive overload and you make sure that your weight and reps increase and keep it stupid simple. That's the aspect of most life that people miss is keeping it stupid simple. And if you focus on weight and reps and you just make sure that you progress, guess what? You can do the same exact movements. For year, over year, over year, over year. And I guarantee you, if they're major compound movements, you won't get weak points. I try to tell people that keep it stupid simple, progressive overload. Make sure that you're progressing. Make sure your execution stays perfect and make sure you're training intense. And if one day you want to go to the gym, hell, you want to do five reps instead of eight reps, do five reps. Make sure that you feel like you're getting crushed under that bar. And it's going to be good for you, but don't get injured. Once you get injured, then you get the setbacks. So that's a whole reason why people are like, oh, these are optimal reps. Hypertrophy comes from training till failure. But it is hard for people to do a set of 50 till complete failure because maybe they need to do 60 reps or maybe they're just creating trauma by the time they even get there and their form is breaking down. That's why like 8 to 12 reps theoretically is the best for hypertrophy. But hypertrophy can, is truly caused by training until failure i don't care what anyone says like that's what the best athletes in the world do in the nfl are you going to see someone that's holding back in yeah. their training when they're you know they're going to get hit by a guy that feels like an 18 wheeler no <laughs> like uh on what you were saying on the there's
1: there's so much information out there that like this person says this and then you can literally find a piece of data that points in the exact opposite direction and you're like well that seems like a credible source as well and then people are absolutely lost but how I see things, it it literally doesn't matter. Like if you want to fucking squat every day, cool, that's awesome. Like it's good at work, you can continue to get reps or continue to get results. But the biggest factor, like bar none, is just consistency over time. Like you just have to fill the fuck up every day and just try to like you. Even if you're doing bench, I can do flat bench. I don't really ever flat bench, but like if I was doing bench, you can do the same weight. And actual people are like, oh, that's the same exact thing, but. I personally, at this stage of where I'm at, doing this twenty fucking years, I can change how I am lifting that, so it feels different for myself. Even if it's the same weight, even if it's exactly the same weight, how I choose to like, okay, I'm going to be focusing on this other aspect of this rep, and and that's those nuances that, like, when you talk to the master locksmith, and he's like, yeah, this is the blah 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 blah, you're like, how do you know that? Well, I've had forty seven years mm-hmm. of. Experience and when you go to the gym 10,000 fucking times, you know what I mean? It
2: starts to really add up. So, one thing that you just mentioned is intensity variables. There are like a million intensity variables, time under tension, blah, 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 like all this stuff out there. But you know what the best intensity variable is? How it feels. How hard Mm. can you make that movement for yourself and execute properly? That's where the money is. Everyone's going to have a different rhythm of their heart that they're going to go too naturally and it's going to feel better for them. That's why time under tension I don't like because I like the the aspect of how fast that weight can go up is how fast that weight should come down, and that prevents injury at the end of the day. But every single person is biologically different, and it could be literally the rate of your heart rate is dictating how fast that's going up and down. Listen to your own body and execute how your body feels best, like whatever is – making those fibers contract properly. When the stretch feels really good, sometimes it feels really good to do a deep stretch, and sometimes it feels like you're about to rip your tendons off your body. Gauge it. <laughs> you know what's interesting is I've, I've
0: always found, just for me personally, I, I usually do, like, if I'm doing, like, cable crossovers, I try to get the, them together, and then I try to push real hard there, and I'll go back real slow. Uh, I can't go back super deep because of my shoulder. But what's interesting is – when you look at someone in the gym, there's a guy in my gym, he's a freaking monster. He's just big as shit. And, you know, I I look at him and I'm like, damn, that's impressive. You know, think about how many, maybe he's done 40,000 bench reps on the bench where I've done 15,000. You know what I'm saying? It's not that he's doing some crazy reverse bench press and he's doing all this stuff. He's done 40,000 reps and I've done 15,000. So I'm 25,000 behind him. Um, I find I find that interesting. And, you know, it's you can't sell intensity. You can't sell an intensity program. You can incorporate it, but you have to let people know, like, yo, I've got this crazy workout. Like I looked at Greg Ducet's workout. Um, It's it's not a bad workout, but there's nothing there's nothing proprietary. There's nothing spectacular about it. It's just a full body workout throughout the week. But that's it, and he made. I'm, I don't know how much money he made, but he's driving a Lamborghini SUV right now. So that—that <laughs> that, that was the other thing I wanted. To, you had mentioned
1: about how people were, what they're putting out around like Greg or, or Ryan or other people that talk about shit like that. But I don't. I mean, uh, there's there's a, an incentive there, like. To talk about things that is going to get them attention because that's going to get them money, whether it is relevant to the population uh, or, or not. I, I actually went through on back to what we were talking about, that was on the tangent. But with my workouts over the past uh, 45 days or so, lo- my workouts have been some of the best they've been in a long, long time. But every exercise, super sad. And it's not like, okay, I'm going to do an antagonizing muscle or that I'm going to even do the same muscle. It's that every, after every single because otherwise I'm like, and you get distracted and you're distracting your mind. And you're and for me, my mind has to be 100% focused on it. So, okay, if I'm not going to be doing this specific primary exercise, that secondary exercise for me is a superset, but it keeps me focused. Mm. And, and, and a lot of the times it's rehabilitation, mobility, uh, active stretching, not dynamic or, or not like static stretching um, or like rear delt type things or maybe some core type of stuff or like, okay, there's this specific area of my body that I'm working on building and supersetting every single exercise throughout my entire workout. <clears throat> wow. The pumps and like the just crazy focus I've been able to, you guys have like little tricks like that that you'll do to maintain focus and intensity while you're in the gym.
2: So the best thing for me, and you're talking about basically mm-hmm. the benefit can be muscle activation. Um, now, when I am warming up, right, like m- warming up should be not to exhaust yourself, but to make sure the muscles are awake, but your mind is awake and connected to that muscle, mind to muscle. So, for instance, when I'm doing dumbbell bench press or bench press, I'll take literally a five pound weight or a ten pound weight, and I'll actually cross over. But the thing is, my issue is I'm trap and shoulder dominant, so I know my weakness. I know where my mind's always going to go. It's it wants my shoulders or my traps to take over because that's naturally where I probably have more fast twitch muscle fibers from like when I was a kid and I used to train them more frequently. I don't know theoretically, or I'm just better at activating those muscles. Whatever. Yeah, I could literally talk about it all day every day. There's like a million different studies I would point to a million different directions. They don't know. Either way, so I'll take a five-timeout time demo in this hand, and I'll literally cross over, and I'll go from the bottom all the way up. See how the shoulder's uh, traps activating right now, all the way to the top, and then I'll bring it back down, and then I'll make sure to adjust and roll the shoulder back and pull it up. Now I'm getting only chest, only chest, only chest, chest. So, and then I'll keep going like that, but it keeps the trap in the shoulder out of the movement, so it tells my brain, hey, don't t- activate the trap in the shoulder because I know that that is a weak point. So that on that first rep, even me knowing that I want didn't want to activate these two and me talking about it to you guys beforehand, I still activate it because that's a natural tendency for me. So I'm trying to, in between my sets, I'm actually doing just light activation work. And I swear I've gotten the best muscle progress in my entire life when I do that. And I get lazy, so I don't do it every single day. But if I did it every single day, which I did it for three or four months straight – I went from like a 225 pound bench press and I went to like 345 pounds for a set of eight within like two or three month period of time by doing muscle activation. And I didn't get injured during that period of time. So that was huge. That's, That's interesting. interesting. Yeah. So for me, I do things a little differently. Like I,
0: I don't follow any particular plan. I don't plan for any particular amount of reps. Um, I just pretty much I walk into the gym and I have a general idea. So if I'm doing chest, I want to do something for, you know, full chest, something for upper chest, something for lower chest. Um, you know, so I mean, flat bench, incline, decline, some variation of that. And then I'll usually do two sets of flies and just uh, just to burn them out. But even on like a set of flat bench, you know, I'll do different weights. So, you know, I'll warm up. Obviously, my first set will probably be in the 10 to 15 range somewhere in there. Then the next set, I could jump it up to where I'm in the 8 to 10 range. And then on the last set, I could drop it down and do the 15, 20 range. And some of the reasons, there's not really any particular reason for it. It's just that when I first get on, I don't want it to be too heavy to where I get injured. So I want to see how I'm feeling, um, get, you know, good 10, 15. Then if I'm feeling good, I can do a rep that's heavy. And then at the end, I put it a little lighter and I really just want to focus and burn out that muscle. It's not, not scientifically proven. I mean, maybe I'll sell a plan at some point to make some money, but that's just kind of. And then for a lot of stuff I'll do to where even if I can't get it, like on the flies, I'll just do as much as I can. I'll just, you know, I can only get it this far, but I'll just do it until I can't do it anymore.
2: Now, I'm going to challenge you really fast, oh, and boy. this it's going to be fun. This is so a non wild
0: episode. I'm getting called <laughs> out now.
2: So you said uh, you incline a flat and a decline, right? Well, why won't you just do an incline and a decline? It's pec major at the end of the day. And then you don't have to worry about getting your shoulders injured on a flat. People tear their labrums all the time on flat. I probably tore my labrum on flat bench press. And when I had a torn labrum, I could do an incline bench press, but I couldn't do a flat bench press. And then after the surgery, I still had issues with flat. I knew flat, again, perfectly fine, but that goes to show – why would I do that movement? If I could do a decline and an incline and accomplish the same exact thing and possibly even overload heavier on that decline, um, why would I do a flat? So that's my challenge to you. And, and to go to go off of
1: what Dave's saying, um, I don't bench flat. I mean, it's probably been, I don't know, a year or something since I've flat. Be, unless I'm doing like uh, triceps and I'm using close grip just to like warm up my triceps or something, but I barely ever do flat bench. And my primary is like incline, and I don't even do decline. In all honesty, I just yeah. do primary like incline stuff or related mm. stuff, and I don't do any flat work because like that's 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 the portion that's going to make everything look big in a t-shirt. It's going to be like, oh wow, I just have a fucking big chest. It's because you're working it all throughout especially if you're doing like four or six exercises or something with multiple sets. So I dropped that a while ago and uh, not that I've noticed a ton because I haven't really been focusing on the chest at this moment, but it's interesting that Dave's mentioning that. And that's exactly how I'm doing it. So if you try that, let us know what you think in a future episode.
0: Yeah, that's interesting, man. I'm down for it. Um, I don't like, I don't work out with a partner. So getting on an actual decline bench makes me a little nervous um, just because I do like to go to failure every time and you hit decline, you're on a decline bench and it's coming back down. Uh, you know, you better hope someone's right there or else you're going to have that shit dressing on your Adam's apple. I, still, so, I see guys, me- I see guys benching by themselves all the time, at my gym, and I, I'll sit there and I watch them and I see it's going up and then it gets a little shaky. And then it starts coming down and I got to run over there. And I'm like, bro, you don't need to put, you know, 315 and bench by yourself. You know, that's not
2: not smart. Here's the trick with decline. Do decline dumbbells, take a flat bench and put a plate under the front side of it. And then you get a slight decline and it actually takes your shoulders out of it. So it's almost like the incline barbell benches that they have planted at these gyms are like 45 degree angles you should be at like a 30 degree angle it makes i don't actually conceptually get why they put it to 45 degrees because you don't need to it's actually uh you're going to get more injury prone. And at the end of the day, you still need to tuck those elbows in anyways, but it's more comfortable and a more powerful movement at about a 30 to 35 degree angle. So I actually bench usually in a Smith machine or using a free weight bench. If I can overload it and I have someone that I can trust, I can spot, but most people can't hand you like 225 plus when you're doing that. Um, so just uh, just food for thought. I would try the decline dumbbell because I do not like decline barbell. I think decline barbell is a very difficult movement to execute properly. It's a dangerous movement. So
0: yeah, the machine that the machine that I have at the crunch at my house, the incline, it's I mean it's it's pretty it's pretty far down. Like and that's where I start yeah. to feel that in the front of my shoulders. I have to kind of for a lot of chest stuff. Like when I first get it off. Like I can, it's hurting my shoulders. And then I can kind of like set, and then I can start benching for whatever reason. But I think I'm going to sit in the chair a little lower on that one, so it's less of a less of an intense angle. Hey, I got a, a good um,
1: an idea that I'd like to kind of probably, we could probably use it to help kind of wrap things up. But let's go through each one of us and share what we're currently working on on our physique that we can touch on and tell the story of as, as over the mm-hmm. next several weeks or months or, you know, however long we want to continue. So uh, you guys go ahead, over once. what are you currently working on? And, and like, where's the destination so that we can draw that story out for people over some period of time.
2: Okay. Go, go Pete. And then I'll go. Out I mean, there. So for me, I mean, I'm
0: down at like the 207, 209 range right now. Um, so I'm pretty happy with that. Um, obviously for me, it's, it's losing a little bit more weight, but there's no, there's no rush for me to do that. Like I said, I'm married. I've been with the same girl for 10 years. You know, I mean, I'm bigger than probably 90% of the population. So it's not, I'm not too worried about it. So for me, it's kind of gain some more muscle and lose a little bit of fat, nothing crazy for me. I'm not stepping on stage. So very no, simple. Then, that thing
1: that way that right there is an amazing goal.
0: that you could you could literally play that out for the next seven years. True. Yeah. Very true.
1: Like there's no there's no guy. I mean, like you could put on six more pounds of muscle and, and lose six pounds of fat and continue that process, you know, do three or four pounds per year. Dave, what about you? I know yours might be oh, more man. internal.
2: I'm about to speak this into existence, and I'm hopefully not going to eat my words on this one. Um, so I'm not going to say I'm past due on a pro card, but I'm past due on a pro card. I get surgery tomorrow on my core. So I've diastased erectile, which is what causes bodybuilders to get bubble guts. I've had it for four years. Uh, My goal is to tighten down my waist back to a 27-inch waist by the time I step on stage. I'm going to potentially work – and this is going to be completely unannounced. I think when I compete, I'm not sure if I'm announcing it. But um, I may take the rebound from the surgery – um, I don't need any extra androgens in my system. Just do TRT like I always do and rebound out of it after four to six weeks. Hopefully I can start to start training again. Use that for a muscle growth period of time and then may roll into a show or go into a growth phase. But I don't need anything. So I'm already have been having issues with this weight cap and my weights down low from healing my gut. So shoot for a pro card. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Just shoot straight up shoot for a pro card, and then me roll into a pro show right after it. My goal is to get to uh, 2023 Olympia.
0: Oh,
1: how oh, yeah. That's amazing. That's
2: right.
0: Sam, why uh, don't you, have you ever competed before? Because, I mean, you stay freaking lean year-round. Like, you're freaking pretty ripped. Uh, no, uh, I've never, I've thought about it,
1: but I always just feel like, I just need to be a little bit bigger. I just need to do a little bit in the lower lats, A little
0: bit Your the last. Yeah.
1: Uh, my current, like, I've got a wedding to go to this coming weekend, so I'm going to drop two more pounds for that, which is pretty trivial. Like, I'm down probably about eight-plus pounds at this point because my I don't want my pants to basically be tighter than my girlfriend's leggings. So, And I didn't want to buy a new suit. I was like, I'll just wear the same suit, but it's perfect time to cut. Now that I'm in a lower weight, I'm just over 230, just about 230, I'm going to go to 250 over the next, say, I don't have a time frame. I've never been to 250. I've been to 247. Um, but that is going to be where I'm going to go to 250. And uh, there's two specific areas that I'm working on. Build. Well, there's three areas. So I've got lower lats. I want to really, really work on bringing out lower lats. That's probably going to be second quarter of next year where I'm going to put in like a lot of work in that. Quads. Uh, I want to continue to uh, widen my, like, my quad sweep. Uh, effectively and then the other thing is my arms there was a period of time where i didn't train arms for like three or four or five years because you're hitting it for chest and you're hitting it for biceps i just didn't train arms and so working on bringing my arms up and i'm currently going through that routine now uh so it'll be interesting to see if i can get to 250 say by the end of april or something of next year be fun journey
0: i like how sam's like he's talking about like his different muscles and different quarters he's like yeah we're working on quads, Q2, then Q3, we're hitting arms, <laughs> Q4, we're shooting for 250. I like how, like how it's like you're talking about like business projections. I like that. It,
2: but it, it's good. That, that's what keeps you accurate to your goals. I mean, like for me, like I dissect myself all the time. So I had a torn labrum for two years when I had the biggest growth of my life, which was between the ages of 20, it was 26 to 28 years old. I had a torn labrum that I was training on. I even competed at a national show with the torn labrum. Um, and I have a, an imbalance on my left lat, um, which is, I've almost evened out over a year and a half period of time. And then I still have a, my left tricep is a little bit smaller. So my arm is actually in measurement. I think it's a half inch difference between my right to my left. And you can see it when I pose, I can hide it when I pose if I want to, but I just don't because I don't care because I need to even it out. So my goal is to bring back my up, but this arm, which I have probably about a half an inch difference in between now is we used to be an inch. Um, and my goal would be probably like 20 inch arms on my physique, which I, last time I measured when I was in prep, I had 18 and three quarter, which I think they're around 18 and a half now, or maybe 18, three quarter around there because they've grown a little bit. And then my quad sweep had to come up. My hamstrings have to come up. My glutes are decent. And then, um, Uh, That left lat actually inserts on the drop is what I actually want to focus on, which is really difficult to bring up some thickness in there. So thickness in like the lower lat area and insert area would be a really nice. um, So on stage, so that's kind of like where I'm kind of targeting right now. Like it's like an artwork, like you have to really think about it and hone in and organize your volume on how you want to do it. You only have so much volume you can put in a week. We, we let's do let's
1: do uh episode uh ending so this way it will kind of work towards so people have an incentive to stay towards the end of the episode because sometimes we go off and stuff but then if you mm-hmm. want to follow our progress at the end of every episode i'm going to ask these two fuckers where they are on their progress and what they've done over the last week to two weeks towards their objectives <laughs> so i'll well, let you know um
0: yesterday i injected uh testosterone and i added a little extra i think 10 12 milligrams of deca so that's that's how i've been working toward my goal just, <laughs> just added a little extra i was just like you know what and i forgot that we were doing this podcast so i was like oh okay well we'll, we'll draw it to the point eight, and then i'm gonna go do chest tomorrow that's gonna be awesome and now i'm on the podcast and now i've realized that my diet's horrible i'm eating a bunch of stuff that's giving me inflammation i'm taking medicine that's giving me
2: cancer so so um one last thing sam and i maybe we should do an experiment one time if you want to do a competition prep and i'll coach you to it and then we can monitor it through this nice. um, that
1: would be that would be really good content that we could we could really take uh, cuz i think it would be super valuable to people
0: yeah well, guys, I think we're going to wrap it up. We're all drinking a lot of water and uh, I think we're all kind of squirming a little bit. So uh, we're going to, we're going to pass it off here. Maybe we should all get urinals installed so that we can just kind of like turn around and we'll come back. But, uh, but it's been a great show. We covered a lot of cool topics. Um, and like I said, if you're watching this on YouTube, we have a podcast app. Um, if you're listening to this on the podcast, we have a YouTube channel. Check us out on social. You see our names here. Um, but We're looking for the next vote for the next one. Uh, Sam, David, appreciate you guys being here. And uh, I don't know, get your levels tested and too much test. Appreciate you guys. Thank you for sharing all the great information. I learned every episode.
1: It's a ton of fun.
2: Yeah, always a blast. I'm I'm actually going to be really curious. Uh, Maybe we should start live streaming this. Um, I have a Twitch account. We can start live streaming it and we can start getting questions from people and kind of let uh, conversation free flow. So maybe something for people to look forward to.
0: Yes. Cool. All right, guys. Well, thank you for listening. You're awesome. And we'll see you here next time.